Hey there, boys and girls. It's Ralph Garman, and you're listening to Talking Codswallop. Good choice. Hey, I'm Alicia Witt. I'm Daniel Portman from Game of Thrones. I play Podrick Payne. I'm Ellipses, and you're listening to the Talking... Okay, I'm Mark Bernard, and you're listening to the Talking Codswallop podcast. Hey, man, it's Kevin Smith, Silent Bob, whose voice you were never used to hearing in the 90s until I started opening it up, man. And that's because I'm a podcaster, and you're listening to a podcast. Talking Codswallop, right here, man. Welcome to episode 18 of Talking Codswallop. With me today, I have got a bestseller author and also a darn right awesome bloke. And his name is Darren Wearmouth. Thank you for joining me today. No problem. Nice to be here. Well, the first thing that I wanted to know is, um, because I like the backstory of people and how they get to the place where they are right now. When did you first realise that you wanted to be an author of your own books? And also why with regards to the genre? Because it's thriller. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a thriller speculative fiction. Yeah. When did you like decide both of those things? And, you know, tell me a little bit about the story of how you became where you are today. It's quite a long story. Okay. I guess it starts when I was knee high to a grasshopper and I liked fiction books. Um, my brother used to buy books and I used to read them off his bookshelf. He had a lot of James Herbert books like Rats and The Fog and also Stephen King, It, Misery, those type of stories. And I also loved post apocalyptic fiction like The Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham and I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. They're, they're all my favourite reads. Some thrilling aspects, some speculative, some science fiction. That's kind of my space where I was when I was a reader and enjoyed doing English at school. I enjoyed writing then, but I never actually thought that I would be an author or contribute to the genre. I spent time with the British Army, serving in various locations around the world. Well, thank you for your service. No problem. It, it was fun. I, I liked it. It's definitely a young man's game. Then I left, worked for some corporate technologies and startups, and, and that took me around the country as well. It's quite a mobile job, and I found... I had lots of spare time on my hands in hotels and bed and breakfasts. So I just started writing again. Um, I needed a hobby and I couldn't just sit there watching TV all night. And I hate going to gyms. Yeah. Pretty boring. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I, I just, I mean, I've still got the first few short stories and a novel that I wrote stored on my hard drive safely, never to see the light of day. I mean, they were terrible, which is very good. Um, I mean, I've, I've used some of the story aspects in it, but that's that's how it all happened. And then the, the whole advent of self-publishing happened. I did write this book and I thought, shall I put it out? Shall I see what people think? It, it's quite a big step if you haven't done it before. It's, yes. it's nerve-wracking. It's, it's very brave. Yeah. Well, you, you do, I mean, I could have used a pen name in, in hindsight, but I didn't because I, I didn't know all that. And I put this book out and then three months later, it sold 50,000 copies and people seemed to like it. I was blown away by the whole experience. And then... The Amazon publishing imprint, 47 North, bought it. And then the rest is history. Oh, that's fa- that is fantastic. It's just basically like you had had this passion and you made it a reality. So good for you. Well done. <laughs> good. When I say good yeah. for you, that sounds kind of condescending. And I don't mean it in a condescending way. I really mean it like it is good that you followed your dreams because there's so many people out there that think, oh, I'd love to be 
I don't know, an actress or a screenwriter or whatever, but then they think, oh, it's too much of a challenge to actually do it. And, you know, you've actually got there. You've done, sorry, you've done the dream that you wanted to do. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's out there for anyone to do. Uh, There's a lot more work behind the scenes. I, I think that if somebody who hasn't written a novel before could appreciate, but I'm sure that they could guess. I think the, the main thing, again, is the, the barrier to be able to put yourself out there. That's probably what stops a lot of people. But again, you know, there's pen names, you can cheat, but you can also use your stay name and do it. Yeah. Uh, and that's the beauty of it, really. It's, it's open and it's accessible to everyone, especially because of what's happening on Amazon nowadays. Yeah, like even myself, I was thinking, there's this children's story that I've been sort of playing around with in my mind. And like, I've probably got you know a couple paragraphs written down and things but thought to myself oh it'd be really cool to actually write my own like children's book and my mum's an artist as well so obviously free illustrator so that's good (laughs) Uh, but yeah with regards to like publishing what do you do (laughs) i guess that's the question (laughs) well there's two routes really um there's the self-published route uh, which is no longer vanity publishing i mean it's people got careers on self-publishing now that you can go to kindle direct publishing it's kdp there's good cover artists out there now you can buy pre-made covers for your books there's loads of editors on the market you get um, your book well edited for a decent price now so you can put all the elements in there that a traditional publisher can do i mean the standards vary you have to find a good cover creator or or editor but it's completely possible to put a decent product out there and market it as well for for people to come and buy and discover you. But then it's impossible to know how some work will resonate in the market, whether it'll work well, whether it work badly. If anybody knew that, they'd be a multimillionaire. And probably helping quite a few people, hopefully, unless they kept the secret to themselves, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. The the other route is going through a literary agent to some of the publishing houses. Now, I did get an agent when I got this first book deal. That does help you, open opens up certain doors to you. You can... Then go to the big imprints that everyone's heard of, HarperCollins. There's too many to mention. Most of them are imprints of the big five, they call them Penguin. Yeah. From Random House now, Hachette. The agent can submit your work to individual editors who they've got relationships with, and then they can come back to you if they think the book's got value and they can improve it. Then you can go that route. And some people see that route as a lot more legitimate, which, you know, in the olden days, I think that does have some credence to it but also it's just as legitimate now i think to self-publish but i've got a mix of both i've got some traditionally published and some self-published i'm not really shy about doing either one i mean as long as readers enjoy my stories that's all i really care about yeah yeah that is the main focus absolutely and with the, the day and age as it is nowadays i don't think anything is abnormal it's kind of like the route that you take is the route that you take isn't it now there's so many different doors that are open for people compared to uh say in the 60s and 70s you know when it was a lot more regimented nowadays probably you know you could click of a button on the internet you could probably find publishing house potentially you know yeah an editor like you said earlier it's probably not quite as easy as that because I've never researched into it. So I'm, you know, not saying that in an insulting way, but things are at your fingertips tips a lot more, aren't they? So Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't mean to try and make it sound easy myself either. It's You have to collectively put all these steps together, but there's plenty of guides online now where you can go and do that. So 
I would advise if anyone was thinking about it, just try it in your spare time and see if you like it. You might be really good at it. You might not. I mean, there's only one way to find out. Yeah. Yeah. So just do it, <laughs> as Mark yeah. would say. Yeah, exactly. And you've got, well, nine books out and a tenth book coming. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I, I do have some out under a pen name as well that uh, I keep relatively secret. Ah, okay. It's, uh, it's in a different genre, which it also does quite well for me because it was, I think it was too far of a step from... The, my current readers to take to go to that, then uh, I used a different name. Okay, was it is it a romance that you've gone for? <laughs> oh, good God, no! I'd be terrible at that. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, you never know. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Shit. It would be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Talking about that, not not that book specifically, but I remember seeing when Fifty Shades of Grey was a big thing. I think there was you know a comedy book that was brought out which was called. 50 Sheds of Grey, and I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that will actually grey is in colour at the moment. I, mean, I could imagine that a nice allotment with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or a, or yeah. a garden, you know, a man shed in the garden. <laughs> yeah, in each slot's a different shade of grey. It'd work. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, of course, there'd be 50 chapters all talking about the one, you know, per, uh, per shed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what an interesting read that would be. <laughs> yeah, uh, oh, I could just imagine. Yeah, uh, I think once you got onto your fourth or fifth plank, you'd be fairly bored. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm curious if you don't mind finding out how you got involved with James Murray and, of course, his, his book and your book, The Awakened. And so if you wouldn't mind, we could talk about that, please. I don't mind at all. I mean, I liked Practical Jokers anyway. It's, it's a good show. It's given me hours and hours and hours of entertainment, some good laughs. My next door neighbor once said, actually said to me, what's that thing you keep laughing at? I mean, I can hear you through the wall. Um, Around <laughs> yeah, seven in the evening, I told him about it. I'm not sure if he's watched it or not. I was just uh, working one day and a, an email popped into my inbox and I opened it and it, it was from my agent and it was forwarded from uh, James's agent. And it, it just said, uh, he's looking for somebody to collaborate and he's wondering if you're interested. I think it was because the editor, the senior editor at Harper Voyager had previously read my work and we'd known each other for a few years ago. And I think he gave James a group of names or James's agent gave him some names as well because they probably had their own agency writers. And uh, he spoke to a few of us. I, I wasn't aware of this at the time. I, I just set up the call and we got chatting. We clicked. I really liked the concept of Awakened. I believed in it. Uh, he's such a nice, genuine, down-to-earth guy. And we, we loved a lot of the same stuff. I and mean, we ended up talking about Star Wars, Alien Trilogy. He showed me his lightsaber. I mean, there's, there's no euphemism there. It wasn't an actual <laughs> lightsaber. <laughs> yeah, we just got on. And then he was coming to Manchester uh, that January. I mean, this all happened oh, a couple of years ago. I saw him in Manchester at the arena we met and we had some lunch and we talked about it further and then we got working on um, polishing up his original book because uh, it, it was 10, 12 years old, as most people already know. And uh, it was just a great experience. I, I, I loved working with him and, and we're going to do more stuff in the future, again, as people probably already know. And yeah, that was it. I mean, I, I went to New York Last November, saw them at Madison Square Garden. Uh, we had dinner with his family. We're all lovely people. Oh, that's nice. It, it was, it was. It, and I'm, I'm going to see him again in June, you know, for the launch. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It's such a friendly kind of down-to-earth atmosphere. It actually, it took me slightly by surprise. I mean, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting something just so easygoing. No, I totally understand because if I'm honest, 
like Mer was always my least favorite Joker on the oh, yeah on the program. And I mean, it's it's not a reflection on him. It's just that you know, like I like the other guys a little bit more. I like tell him Steve Dave, so Q was always number one. You know, kind of thing. So after, because I actually went on the the cruise last year from yeah uh, yeah. So I was. I was in the States almost at the same time as you were. So, you know, we missed each other by a few weeks, I think. I actually met James Murray and he's he was such a lovely, lovely guy. Mm. And I can't speak highly enough of him now. Do you know what I mean? It's like, he's completely different. I, I mean, he's not completely different to the person that he is on TV, but he is in a way because he just cares about everybody so much. Yeah, he. I mean, I, I do get that impression of him. I mean, he's a loyal guy. We work together. I, I know some stories from some people behind the scenes that know Mer, and, and they've told me, you know, how much, you know, he, he goes out of his way to help them out and tries to bring other people up around them who they know, you know, from Staten Island and other areas and, yeah. and, and tries to get people, you know, into just a very nice, generous, helpful guy. And yeah, you're right. He's slightly different in real life. I, I think the, to some extent, the impractical jokers are characters that have developed over the season, you know, with Q. It, in season one wasn't anything i mean now he's spot, sort of like the uh, the gruff guy with a conscience he wasn't like that at all and if you watch the first season no. um episode one when he goes to eat that chinese food off the person's plate then goes off for seconds because they're all laughing and he's encouraged by it he, he wouldn't do that now whereas joe is sort of you know, i mean I, I i mean you know all the characteristics as well as me um i think they've all developed as characters but yeah, as, as you say when you meet them in real life they are slightly different. i think a little bit more relaxed than uh, in the environment probably because they know they're not going to be punished i've been having to do anything awkward in a challenge i think the only like downside of potentially of them being so famous in a way is the fact that they probably feel like they have to put on that persona a lot more because they are in the public eye a lot more so you know when they're walking down the street it's kind of almost you've got to have an air about you haven't you just just in case you can't never relax until you shut the door of your own home which i don't know i don't know if i could cope with that kind of lifestyle really because i have grumpy days and i have happy days you know and i just think to myself well if people get me on the wrong day <laughs> i probably wouldn't be well, I'm, gl- I'm glad i haven't got well, am i on the right day or the wrong day you were on the right day so don't you worry oh. <laughs> I, <laughs> i've got a podcasting persona so don't worry <laughs> okay all right okay so, so as soon as we we hang up then yeah you can <laughs> say what you like or I, I you know they've all been really nice to me i i I couldn't put myself in their position because I can't imagine what it'd be like. I can't imagine it would be completely easy. I, th- I guess people would probably, if I was to think about it now, I guess people would would enjoy the benefits that it brought, but probably would dislike some of the other things. I mean, I, that's the benefit of being an author, sitting here typing away. Um, I very rarely have to do anything like that, and hardly anyone knows who, who I am. I mean, I, I get a lot of emails about my books, and I always respond to people, and that's very nice. You know, if somebody's prepared to take eight to ten hours out of their life to read my book or listen to an audio then the least i can do is have the courtesy to reply to an email yeah absolutely. But i don't have to walk around the street holding any kind of persona no <laughs> yeah which is a good thing so so it's nice it's nice that you can just sort of just be relaxed yeah i think re- relaxed is the way to do it and uh, i've got a face for writing as well oh, bless you <laughs> no you haven't if you look anything like your picture you haven't you're fine oh it- yeah, it's all fake. I got them from Shutterstock. <laughs> and no wonder it's a video, uh, an audio call. Yeah, well, I've got a face for radio, so that's fine. 
No. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we're self-conscious. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, when we uh, last time I was over there, we went to the Harper Collins office and did a Facebook Live. Okay. You know, answering questions, and I think it was like the the morning after I landed, and we got whisked in there and introduced to various people, and then I was plonked in front of a camera, uh, like bright lights glaring in me. Someone come and started applying makeup to my face. <laughs> it's completely alien, and then it started rolling, and all these questions started uh, coming quickfire. It was so good of James because he's used to that. He's been able to manage the situation and make it really easy for me. Uh, you know, that's another benefit, you know. Yeah. You know his awareness uh, in those type of situations to be able to do that and make it easy for me. So uh, it's another reason why I appreciate. It. It's good to take the, the fire off of you, sort of thing. Otherwise, I'd have been uh, yeah rabbit in the headlights, just sitting there stuttering, coming across as. I don't know, an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you wouldn't have, but yeah, I think people have got to factor in that. You know, people do get nervous or overwhelmed or whatever. So, but then I suppose if you, was that in the UK or was that in America? Yeah, that was uh, in America. Oh, okay. We've got um, an even bigger event coming up uh, in June from the 22nd to the 24th. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but that's when the book launches. Oh, okay. And in Manhattan, there's a whole experience where. James has funded this huge garage in Greenwich Village in Manhattan to uh, a company called Blood Manor have set up three scenes from the book, like the smashed up subway car and then the subway track and then the creature's lair. And you can walk through all three of these things. And at the end of it, you come out to a meet and greet where there's a sign in and going to be merchandise available for wine, like Chattamere. And then on the evening after the experience finishes, there's going to be a, a big after party, a bar somewhere, I think in downtown manhattan so that's gonna be full on three days sounds like fun as well though it does sound like a lot of fun yeah i was gonna say probably a lot of work for you but the whole idea of recreating scenes from the book that sounds like a really clever idea actually because you know obviously with books imagination is the key isn't it but uh to actually mm. make things a reality because quite often like i'm not a massive book reader to be completely honest with you but i love films so when the you know, when the director has made the book a reality, it's, you know, it's, it's always fascinating to me. But then at the same time, I also understand from the people who do read the books that it's not necessarily how they saw it, you know, so it can be a catch-22, can't it? But yeah, it really does. It sounds like a lot of thought has gone into that and also a lot of fun is going to be happening as well. Absolutely. There's there's a Facebook page run by Heather Axton called uh, it's the Waking Novel fan page and there's a lot of information on there about it and a lot of people there are going. So both James and I are members of that page and we can interact with people who are actually going to come. So that's quite fun. You, know, you can put a name to a face before you even meet them. That's quite pleased with that. It's a really nice way to engage with people and vice versa. But what you were saying before about books and films, you've been more film than book. I mean, the way I see it, a film is, is just a, it's a, it's an easy way to read a book. It's like a, a visual art. It's been visualized for you, hasn't it? Whereas, yeah. I mean, the moment I get out of books is that I can create that own experience in my head, visualize the characters. I suppose it might explain sometimes why a lot of people say, oh, the book was better than the film. I mean, I've got two points to that. I mean, the first one is it's almost impossible to cram a novel into a film and you can never have that character narrative. So it's impossible to know unless you have the voiceover, which doesn't always work apart from maybe with something like Dexter. Yeah. Uh, secondly, sometimes I just like to relax and kick back and watch TV rather than reading a book because reading a book does take a little bit more effort, but 
I think read this is my personal view and everyone's different. I think reading is a lot more evolving, but I, I do enjoy TV a lot. You know, it's not even to the point because I was going to say, oh, yeah, because you do get a bit more of a manage- uh, imagination when you read and things like that. But I've got a wacky imagination. So, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know quite how that happened. But I think also probably because I'm I'm sort of borderline dyslexic as well. So I don't know if that might have a factor as to why I don't read. But either way, you know, it's by the by. We don't need to point out my faults. <laughs> it's, it's a funny one. because I mean, I, there's also audiobooks. Yeah. But again, I don't know if this is because I'm a writer and I really appreciate good writing, is that I don't get the same satisfaction from an audiobook as I do reading. Like, for instance, one book I got recently was by Douglas Kennedy called The Dead Heart. It's kind of like Wolf Creek meets the Phil's Hill, um, the Hills of Eyes. Oh, awesome. Really good. In the Australian Outback. Yeah. And you would never know it by the cover, but I, I come across it, I read it, I enjoyed it quite a lot. So the next kind of experience I got, I got an audio book because I was on the train and uh, just sitting down relaxing. Oh, I say, what was that noise? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's just a text from James, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, what does he say? What does yeah, he say? I mean, <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Uh, you are a... No, you <laughs> don't. There's a lot of interaction going on at the moment because we've got the launch coming up. And it's not only that we've got UK books coming out, we've got the, the launch event, and we're also trying to set up events going across the UK, with which are going to be big parties, basically. The um, we can't the film set, uh, the sets that have been put up in Manhattan can't be transported across. So we're looking at doing other things like Q&As and maybe getting a performance sacked on before and then just having a bit hiring out a bar and just having a big party there, which will be quite good you know, if anyone wants to come along and, and party with us. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment. Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know how, he, how he's got enough hours in the day to do this, the movie, know. the practical joke, you know, the launch event and everything. He's, he, he's got so much energy. Yeah, he really has. <laughs> Sorry, but anyway, you were talking about audiobooks. So, <laughs> and until James rudely interrupted, how rude of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't get the same experience for, from the audiobook. And I found myself losing concentration because A, I didn't have anything to watch, and B, I didn't have anything to read. It was just someone talking at me for eight hours. Yeah. So, I think out of all three mediums, that's my least favourite, but I can see the benefits when you're driving. Yeah, definitely. Because with regards to podcasts, of course, you know, like there's quite often when I'm driving to and from work because I have an hour's commute every day apart from today, which was almost two hours, which was fantastic for no reason. But I do listen to a lot of podcasts. I tell him Steve, Dave, a lot of Kevin Smith's podcasts and whatnot. Yeah, I think that probably like audiobooks would probably be quite good for me in a way because I'm I'm listening as I'm driving. But at the same time, when you're driving, obviously you're thinking about what you're doing. But also sometimes if you get into autopilot, your brain kind of drifts off into, I don't know, what you're going to have for dinner tonight or whatever. And you do actually miss parts of what has just been said to you. Mm. One of those people that's kind of, oh, something sparkly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And that's what happens to me with audiobooks. Uh, I start doing that and I think, oh, you know, I might have a game of Golf Clash on my phone or something. Just get dived. I I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, Can you answer me a quick question? Yes. This may may sound like 
I live in a, I don't know, a treehouse as a hermit somewhere. But who is Kevin Smith? I keep seeing a picture of some bloke with a beard and like a uh, an ice hockey top on Twitter, but I've got no idea who he is. Okay. Well, he's, um, I'm not going to judge you. So first of all, but other people might. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, give, we'll give your Twitter handle at the end of this so people can judge you. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Kevin Smith is a writer and director and he's also a podcaster now. And he's famous for films like Clerks was one of his films and Jay and Silent Bob, Strike Back. Does that ring a bell? No, see, I, I don't. Okay. These have all passed me by. So I generally have no idea who he is, was. I mean, I, I saw that he had a heart attack, which was quite bad. It was. It was very bad, actually. It kind of shook it. it well, I imagine like it shook me quite badly. So I imagine that it shook the audience quite badly, but... When he's in his own films, he plays a character called Silent Bob, and si- Silent Bob does probably what you can imagine. So he doesn't speak, <laughs> but okay. but he's always got like a profound one or two lines in the whole film, which he does. Uh, yeah, and he always does it proud. But it's also he's got Jason Muse as well, who I'm assuming you probably don't know him either. And uh, no, no, I don't okay. Know. Well, they're like they're like best friends from school as well. So he, yeah, he plays a, he plays a character called Jay. So that's nice and easy for him. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Have you ever seen Dogma? Dogma. Yeah. No, that does ring a bell. When was that made? Um, was that all? Year wise, I'm not sure. I'm just going to Google it at a moment. Was it late nineties? No, it was either late nineties or very early two thousands. Yeah, I, I think I did watch this. But again, I would remember it if it was one of my favourites. You know, if, if you just said, oh, has he done Gladiator or Goodfellas or something like that? Yeah. Um, but... uh, oh, it was 1999. Hmm. And yeah, it had Ben Affleck in it and uh, Matt Damon, George Carlin was in it as well. Alan Rickman. Is this sort of ringing a bell? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, I have seen it. I mean, I, I remembered seeing it around that time. I, I didn't know he had anything to do with it. Like I said, I mean, apologies for asking the question. Oh, no, I, I just didn't know. Seeing, seeing as you mentioned it, you you just saved me looking on Wikipedia and doing research, so thank you. Yeah, no problem at all. And I don't think you should ever apologise for not knowing something. You know, there's no like I've always been told that there's no stupid, uh, stupid questions. So, um, and I really do believe that that there isn't. If you don't know, if you don't know something, then you should ask, shouldn't you? So, yeah, absolutely. The uh, the people who think they know it all tend to be the most stupidest person in the room. So. <laughs> I'm quite happy to admit when I don't know things. Yeah, like my friend Nicola always says, every day's a school day, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was watching Pointless at tea time. It was one recorded on Sky Plus, and there was some medical condition relating to the eye beginning with A, um, and the bloke said astigmatism. And I said, no, that's you, know, you can't have astigmatism. It's like stigmatism, isn't it? And it, it actually is that word. I never knew. I mean, I, you learn something every day. Oh, Okay. Yeah, because I thought it was stigmatism as well. So yeah, that's insane. <laughs> I had to Google it. I thought, no, that's not right, but it is. It's right. Oh wow! Okay, I love all these. I love game shows because you get mm-hmm. to learn so much. But my one of my favourite ones at the moment is Tipping Point. Yeah. It just reminds me of like all the two P's and one P machines, you know. <laughs> yes. Just, yeah, I blew. I, I wouldn't say hundreds of pounds. I blew hundreds of pence. In uh, uh, Whitby, Scarborough, Skegness, all those, you know, the, the Northeast Riviera. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, we like literally just used to go straight after school and we just used to spend so much money there, so much time there. 
you think you'd always put the money in so that you get the free toy as well but you think about the fact that the free toy has probably cost you about five pound (laughs) not really free at all is it no then again i see people walking around with a giant smurf tucked under their arm when they're at the fairground yeah i mean would you really what are you going to do with it (laughs) i don't know for a couple of days it will probably go on your bed and then after that you just get really annoyed by it and it's shoved in the cupboard (laughs) Yeah, just end up in the loft collecting dust. Yes. And to be fair, if I was at the fair, I probably wouldn't want to be carrying that round unless somebody could hold it for me when I went on the waltzer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I suppose if you're on the waltzer and you happen to be on your own, at least you'd have a giant blue smurf with you. Well, that, that's a good point, actually. You, if you went on your own, you, you wouldn't have to feel so lonely, would you? You could pretend you're with someone, put, put a wig on the smurf, put your arm around it when you're on the um, wheel or whatever. Yeah, uh, but the only question that I have on that is, uh, would the smurf be allowed to be on the ride? Because isn't there, like, a height limitation? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're getting too technical now, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I think I think that they can make an exception, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, I I would think so. Probably because it's not alive. So if it falls out of the uh, of the safety barrier, it's not going to be an issue. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I won't take you down with me on that joke. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, I I can do that very well myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier today, I was actually thinking about silly questions and things like that. You know, so obviously discussed tonight and things. And I had a thought of. Was when you were a child, was there any TV programs that you were afraid of? Not really, um, because I mean, I did like horror from an early age. I used to have nightmares about Dracula living under my bed. In fact, when I used to sleep at my nan's house, she said if you if you didn't go to bed early enough and fall asleep, then the bed monster would come out and <laughs> suffocate me with a pillow. <laughs> <laughs> That, that used to scare me more than any TV program, to be honest. And I didn't go to sleep. I'd just sit there shaking for the next three or four hours until Tidus eventually took me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I don't think, I'm not quite sure. Like, I, you know, I'm not going to disrespect your um, your gran, but yeah, I'm not quite sure where, uh, where her head was at when she came up with that one, because that really isn't good for a bedtime story. <laughs> No, I would prefer the Jungle Book, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. Because I was actually outside and I was thinking, because with my work we had a royal visitor to sort of open up our building and things. We've had a Queen's Award and it was no one, it sounds awful, but it was uh, one of the less known royals. Which one was it? It was the Duke of Kent. Is he the the one who always goes to Wimbledon and presents the trophy to the winner? Possibly, yeah. It's quite thin, bald head. I mean, that, that's most of them, actually, isn't it? Thin and bald. <laughs> Big ears, <But>. yeah. <laughs> he was definitely a royal. <laughs> yeah. He was there yesterday. Today, while we were outside having a cigarette, in my case, we were talking about, about the fact that he came and, you know, his appearance and things like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's just like um, watching Spit and Image. And it reminded me that Spit and Image was something that absolutely freaked me out when I was a child. Really? Yeah. Because it was just like the puppets, because they were so weird looking. They used to just absolutely creep me out. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I do remember a lot of the, uh, some of the old Tory politicians when they used to have Norman Tebbit as the Lord of Darkness, whatever, and John Major in his grayscale. And yeah. I guess like Roy Hattersley, wasn't it? The Labour MP, they used to have him spitting everywhere. And yeah, they, they were quite. I think Bo Selector was a nice anecdote to that. Yes. Anti- yeah, definitely. Not anecdote. <laughs> 
But then it also made me think, because my brother listens to this podcast as well, so I'm, I might just freak him out a little bit now as well. He, when he was a small child, he used to get freaked out by Rupert the Bear. <laughs> Yeah, now that is weird. <laughs> it is weird, you're right. But any time that the music came on, it was like, Rupert, Rupert the Bear, <laughs> and so on, because I can't remember the song. But I, even as an adult, sometimes I, uh, you know, I tease him and I uh, sing Rupert the Bear to him and he, he still kind of goes a little bit like, that's horrible. If, if it was my brother, I would tell everyone whenever he was around that that was the case. Yeah, well, I mean, I've done it on a podcast now, so... <laughs> yeah, excellent. You said he listens. He does, yeah. Well, he doesn't listen regularly, so I'll make sure he actually listens to this episode. So he supports me, but only half-assed. Half assed. <laughs> yeah, it may be even less now that you revealed that. I know. <laughs> but, you know, you know, we had, like, deep down, we have got a loving relationship, so... Uh, I'm sure he'll forgive me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Did you want to let people know where they can get your books if if they want to purchase them, which I'm sure they will? You could go to awakennovel.com yep. to get awakened. There's links there that will take you to any store in the world that sells them. And you can also buy tickets for the launch event at awakennovel.com. So that's there. The easiest place to find all of my books and all of the audio books is going to Amazon and just putting my name into the search box. Okay. Uh, I thought that that would probably be the case, but just in case there was any other way that, you know, you'd, you'd prefer people to purchase them or whatever, I thought I'd give you an opportunity. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, it's no problem. For, for anyone who doesn't like Amazon, and I know some people are out there, it's a bit like Windows and Mac, Apple, isn't it? Yeah. You can go to Barnes & Noble online store and they sell my paperbacks. Oh. Okay, fantastic. Well, hopefully you'll get a few more purchases from this episode. So fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want commission if you do, all right? <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll give you 0.001%. Yes, I, it's okay. I'll leave the commission then in that case. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it could buy you a packet of Haribo, I suppose. Yeah, that would be good. So did you fancy talking about TV programs? Well, I, I quite like digging into quite a bit of depth when it comes to watching TV programs, particularly um, story arcs, characters and plot. Uh, I know that might sound a little bit geeky. I mean, why can't you just sit back and enjoy it? But no, I just can't help it. I mean, it's my nature. I mean, it's probably why I do what I do with the books. It's, it's just the way that I'm wired. And th there's two really contrasting examples. I mean, two of my favourite shows that are different for so many reasons – um, and good for so many reasons, and that would be Dexter and Breaking Bad. Do you like that? I've not watched Dexter yet. It is on my mm. Netflix list of uh, programmes that I need to watch, but I haven't actually got around to it yet. But Breaking Bad, I definitely have watched that, and I absolutely love that series. And it's almost a shame that it's over, because, I mean, it was a fantastic finale, but it is a shame that there isn't going to be any more of it, well, as yet, you know, the... Never say never, I suppose, is it? Yeah, it's so good. I mean, the whole plot, for a start, drew me in immediately, where you've got the uh, chemistry teacher who's got terminal disease, and then he has to make money for his family because he hasn't got lots, so he goes into drugs and everything. That's great, particularly because he comes across someone like Jesse Pinkman, who's his complete opposite. Yeah. And the fact that his brother-in-law, Hank, is a police officer, and he's 
or he's actually in the DEA, isn't he? So it's like he's right next to him. But I love it because once it gets to the end, then Walter has actually turned into some evil genius with an empire who's rich. Yeah. And Hank, who's a bit of a Jack the Lad, has turned into like a serious cop after the shootout when he gets injured. And then Jesse turns from a completely irresponsible... Drug addict, really, isn't it? Yeah, into someone who's quite responsible and he really feels for what happened to his girlfriend. Little does he know it was Walter's fault. So they've all got a complete arc where they transform from like the start to the end. And there's so many good peripheral characters as well. I mean, there's Skylar and and Walter White Jr. there, isn't there? There's Maria, who's Hank's wife, and... And, of course, um, Saul Goodman, who's the lawyer who's got the spin-off series. I mean, that's me. It just brought together like a a perfect concept, great characters and a good plot. I don't think there's ever been anything as original on TV. No, I I agree with you. I don't think there ever has been either. First of all, seeing Brian Cranston, because I'd watched Malcolm in the Middle and programmes like that, it was sort of hard to sort of adjust my brain from being Malcolm in the Middle to this character that he is now. But it was so fantastic. He's such a brilliant actor because, like you said, he went from being a chemistry teacher to being at one point in a desert outside of a caravan with no clothes on apart from his pants, you know. Wife as well. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Very sexy look. And loads of fun little cameos. In contrast to Dexter, which, again, it's it's a compelling concept, where he's a serial killer who's apparently got good intentions and he's harnessed his dark passenger and he uses it to kill other serial killers who evade justice. In, in fact, he makes he makes sure some of them evade justice so, so he can purposely kill them and quench his desire to be able to murder. And it's got a really great setting in Miami and some good music, some really good visuals of the city, like the Art Deco stuff, a lot of colour and it's very vibrant. But the peripheral characters, unlike Breaking Bad, are all cardboard cutouts and they only really serve to like boost him. So it's not as well-rounded, but it's good for different reasons. It's it's a, It's got a lot more excitement and fast-paced tension in it than Breaking Bad. So I should move that up my list of programmes to watch then? Up until the end of season four, it's excellent. In fact, the end of season four will blow your mind if you get into it. It does go down a little bit after that. I mean, it depends how much you love it and how much you're invested to whether you stick with it or not. I think most people did, but they had a feeling inside that it just wasn't as good. But season one to four, highly recommended. I mean, for me, I always have to watch the first three episodes of a season really to be invested but yeah. with this one i was in it straight away i think you should watch the first two and let me know what you think i don't think you'll regret it okay i will certainly do that then i'll let you know as well because and also with netflix i have found a way that you can remove them but you know so often they're still there in your to be viewed section aren't they it just frustrates me that it's still there even if i've decided that i don't want to watch a program so i usually really put a bit of research into it before i actually go ahead and watch a program but mm-hmm. i will i will go and actually watch that on your recommendation so and it it sounds like the kind of thing that i would like if it's very similar to breaking bad yeah it's uh obviously i, I realize mean, it's a different story and everything as well. it's not as gritty as as breaking bad because i mean they had those characters like crazy eight you know with these cold teeth and everything and yeah. spooge you know the the druggie who was just in the house and it was all dark and they were trying to break into that cash machine it's not as dark as breaking bad but it's certainly 
a little bit more gruesome. Definitely sounds like something that I would probably watch. So <laughs> I don't know if that makes me sound like a good person or not, but, you know, sod it. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's good escapism. I, I mean, I really like it. You end up rooting for someone who actually goes out with a desire to kill people. I mean, yeah. granted, 99% of the people deserve it, but still, you end up supporting a serial killer. Have you ever seen a programme called Aquarius with... Oh, um, oh, David Duchovny. It's basically the story of Charles Manson, but yep. in the younger years. And it's really weird because you do actually almost feel sorry for Charles Manson in quite a few of the episodes. And, it, you know, like you said, rooting for a serial killer or fearing, feeling sympathy for a serial killer is, you know, it's kind of hard to kind of get your head around, isn't it? Yeah, it's effectively a bad person. I've made this point a few times online, and it's a little bit like Breaking Bad. Uh, Breaking Bad, it's a bit like The Walking Dead. Yeah. Rick Grimes, I think, is actually a post-apocalyptic serial killer. He approaches people and he gives them a weird set of questions, like who have you killed, how many walkers have you killed, how many people have you killed? Yeah. And he seems to completely accept it without batting an eyelid. If somebody says, oh, I've killed... 30 people, he's like, holsters his wheel gun and goes, okay, that's fine. If somebody has a conscience and denies it, he seems to have a problem with it. And he also has killed quite a lot of people in cold blood. For instance, Negan's people at the satellite station, like stabbing them to death in the sleep. Yeah. So... I don't understand why people hold him up as a hero. I, I think he's just as bad as Negan or the governor. To be honest, I don't actually like the character Rick. No. You know, because of that reason. There are so many other good characters in there. I think actually my favourite one was the Chinese guy. I've forgotten his name. Oh, uh, Glenn Reed. Yeah, Glenn. Mm. I think he was definitely one of my favourite ones. And when he died, it was it was horrible. I mean, it was horrible death anyway, wasn't it? But it was horrible because he's been in it since near enough day one. And you kind of grow he to was. watch the character and everything. And he was just like, a. it was a good soul that he would kill people. I mean, not people, but he'd kill walkers just to survive. But, you know, it's almost like you think that he probably wouldn't kill anything if he didn't have to. No, he's, he's certainly not as blasé as Rick. No. His death was actually quite gratuitous. Negan bashing him on the head and his, his eyeball like semi-popping out yeah. on his final bubbling breaths and he's rocking backwards and forwards. Then Negan crouches in front of his face and says, uh, are you still in there? <laughs> he's still alive. <laughs> I love Negan. <laughs> yeah. And he turns around and just wax him again and it's game over it's quite a shocking ending for a main character it is but it's also for the comic book readers it's very good because apparently that happened in the comics as well so it was good that they kept it true to the the comic reading part which in all honesty that's you know if i was to read i probably would want to read like comics and like the image selection which is where where walking dead falls under because again it's like the horror and things like that but I'm also a collector as well. If I was to start reading something, then I would possibly sort of get to the point where I needed to needed to have every copy, you know, <laughs> which yeah, which is tricky. Yeah, definitely. With regards to the TV series, I think it's I think it's brilliant because at the very beginning, you were trying to, or the characters were trying to survive the zombies, and that was probably went up until about maybe series three, series four. But then from that point onwards, it's now been how do humans survive each other? And like the zombies have become like a, almost like a non-existent threat anymore. You know, they occasionally pop up, but it is more how do humans actually cope each other? Yes, they're more of a silly sideshow now. It's almost like the directors have thought, what kind of 
stupid scenario can we put a zombie in? <laughs> yeah. Like trapped in a swamp or like nailed to a tree or, or like chained up or <laughs> hanging off a telegraph pole or, you know, <laughs> they're not that effective. Being a science fiction fan and obviously being a fan of science, I mean, you do have to let a lot go in these type of things, but I've never really understood zombies. I mean, how do they have a bite so powerful that they can rip flesh off people's faces and whatnot when all the muscles are degraded and how do they even see and where do they get the motor skills from i mean i, yeah. I don't know too, too deeply but yeah, you can carry and, on and if you want to that's fine <laughs> yeah i mean you do have to let it go with zombie fiction don't you it's, you just have to accept they're somehow reanimated and, and doing it like this but you're right it's all about the characters now the only thing i don't quite get is that how all these groups are actually trying to kill each other i mean surely the best way forward would be if everyone got together under a dictatorship that wasn't very totalitarian at all, mm-hmm. you know, like a, an equal society and just clear a huge area of zombies and live together. I mean, surely that's the way ahead. But yeah. the start of not the last season, the season before, I think when they're in Terminus and they were like knelt in front of the pig's trough and people were going along, one of them baseball batting hostage on the back of the head, then the second one following up and slashing the throat. That was one of the most brutal openings, I think, to a season I've ever seen. Yeah, I remember it. As as you were describing it, I definitely remembered it. I think, to be honest, with this programme, anything is brutal, isn't it, really? So, Also, because everything is so graphic and gory, if they want to make an impact on this at this point, they have to make it that extra, extra gruesome. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Because, it's, I mean... Everything standard has already been done. I particularly like the jail season when they were around there and that there was a flu epidemic or a mini flu epidemic. And that boy, I think he died in his sleep, didn't he? And then the next thing we saw, he was just shambling along and went into one of the cells of where somebody was sleeping. And then it cut away. And then it went back to him a minute later and he was just ripping all the intestines out, eating them. (laughs) I think they have to go for that kind of thing. Or the the guy who got stuck in the revolving door and... (laughs) I can't remember who it was, the, the one that they picked up at the hospital, and he got his face, like, ripped off. Yeah, I, d- I don't know. I mean, I, I'm probably like you in the fact that I do get a little kick out of things like that, as twisted as it might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, everyone's got to have something different, haven't they? So, mm. it, you know, it would be a boring world if everybody agreed this is the correct way to think and this is the correct interest to have and whatnot, because none of us would be unique then, would they? So No, not at all. I mean, uh, it's, you, you do often come up with these debates, don't you? Like speaking to a friend the other day and he's saying, oh, Broad Church is great or really like uh, the tunnel crime fiction dramas that are on the BBC at the moment. I find them boring as anything. It's just just, just not me. You know, I, I like to have something a little bit more, something a bit speculative, exactly the type of things we've been talking about. Dexter Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead. It's a concept, isn't it? And with those concepts, it forces people into difficult decisions. Whereas detective dramas and everything, I just find them, well, I just find them dull. There's, well, there's certain ones that I enjoy. I enjoy, do you like Endeavour? No, I've not seen that, so I don't know. Uh, I enjoy that one. That, that was quite good. It's set in the 1960s. It's a prequel to Inspector Morse, which I didn't particularly like. I probably watched a couple of, well, series, series <laughs> of um, um, Inspector Morse and, you know, that they, they didn't really make an impact on me to be honest but I think it was also probably because I was looking at watching them at a younger age it probably just didn't have any interest in me at all that's another good point though isn't it you're 
taste changes with age. Yeah. I think 15, 20 years ago. And the same as you, when these things were out like Moss, uh, Minder and all those kind of things, I didn't find them remotely entertaining. You know, I may do now if I went back and watched them. Yeah. But I didn't have that kind of patience when I was younger. I wanted something that had hit me in the face. I'd say that Murder, She Wrote probably still isn't great, though. <laughs> no. The, uh, I mean, there's a theory going on that she was a serial killer. She committed all of those murders ah. in that little town in Maine and then used to oh, stumble across them, skillfully solve it herself and blame some of the local. That's the theory, anyway. Yeah, that sounds like actually quite a... Well, actually, that sounds like a better story, to be honest. So, <laughs> Because it was always the same every week. It was, there's been a murder. Oh, here she is again, solving the murder, you know. And, oh, it's solved. <laughs> now she's writing yeah. again. What happened to her husband? Nobody ever found out. We, we just know that they used to be together in England. And then she's in this small town in Maine. I mean, the, the other rumour going around is he was her first victim. And that's what gave her the taste for murder. I mean, she... She killed him just to see what it was like watching a man die. And then, obviously, she had to flee the country and found a perfect little town where no one would suspect her. Yeah, I like it. I like this theory. Actually, I almost want to go back and watch them now with this theory in mind. And uh, it might actually make it a better watch. So It would make it quite chilling, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The programme that I was trying to think of earlier was Ripper Street. Yeah. Have you ever seen that programme? Yes, I have. I I thought it's it's quite cleverly made, isn't it? They do all the uh, camera action and the background noises and and whatnot yeah i just like the fact that it's set in the time of jack the ripper but the story isn't you know there's never been approached of the fact that sort of jack the ripper is sort of like being mentioned or whatnot but it's actually talking about all the other things that are actually happening around that time because i quite like history and things like that as well so it was quite interesting to the hookers being killed but it's by the candlestick man you know <laughs> yeah I know what you like I, I, know, I know exactly what you mean you get a bit more of a deep dive into that era I love history as well I, I love Taboo with Tom Hardy I mean that was 60-70 years earlier than the rip but still 1800s I know what you mean I, you just get to see a little bit more of that world a bit like uh, Jeremy Brett's Sherlock Holmes, he's very good. Yeah. But regarding The Ripper, I saw an excellent documentary a couple of weeks ago, okay. but it was by a Swedish journalist, and it was, who was Jack the Ripper? And he claimed he had the answer. And it was quite compelling. I, I've got to say, you could probably find it on YouTube. The person who found the first victim on the street was called Charles Lechmere. Right, okay. He, he gave a false name to the police and slipped through the net. And, and, and when he did that, he, he said to the, the policeman, Corden, oh, there's a dead woman in there, but there's another policeman with her. But there wasn't. He found, you know, he was the only person originally there on the scene, and then he left. And nobody ever quite dug into his past. So uh, if you're interested in The Ripper at all, and you may be because you watch Ripper Street, I would... I would say watch that. I think it was Jack the Ripper, the real evidence or or the, the new suspect or something. It was done by Channel 5. Yeah, I definitely want to see that because I think that is one of the biggest mysteries out there, isn't it? I yeah. mean, there are other mysteries, of course, as well, but that's the, the one that fascinates me the most, who he was. Because obviously uh, people say he's a doctor, people say he was part of the royal family. There's so many different sort of stories out there. Yeah, the uh, King Surgeon, isn't it? That was a, yeah. one of the reasons. And also that guy who uh, went to America and created the House of Horrors in Chicago, I think it was. Yeah, he was as well. So, and yeah, like it, I've, I've said it a couple of times because I, 
I like time travel and things like that. All all things that, you know, I can't solve or do, I really like. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like if I was to be able to go into time travel, I would probably want to go back to that time and try and work out who Jack the Ripper was. So, well, What would you do if you come across him just before he was about to approach the victim? <laughs> I don't know if I'd be too defenceless or not, but I mean, I'd try and help and actually try and, you know, maybe kill him first. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't Ooh. put as much thought into that. And then the other side of it is is that it's the ripple effect, isn't it? Not the ripper effect, the ripple effect. That if I was to then go back in time and kill him or solve the mystery and manage to, you know, knock him out, say, so that he was arrested, would that then affect anything that has happened nowadays? Well, he he had five victims, didn't he? Was it Nichols, Chapman, Stride? I can't remember the names. I can't remember so. the last. Um, but yeah, they would have had lives. I don't know if they've had children or not. But yeah, it would have created an alternate history if you go and knock him out. I mean, I'm not suggesting that you'd have a photo and vanish like Marty McFly and Back to the Future, but <laughs> it, it would have some effect. Do you like 12 Monkeys? Yes, I do. That is another, because we were talking about that as well, weren't we? Ooh. I really love that. I love that programme so much. And... I mean, like I, I've mentioned to you previously, I did watch the first two series and then I haven't, I think there's a third series now, isn't there, that I haven't watched at the moment, but only because of like timing and things like that. But I really did enjoy it. And I like the fact that they could splinter, it was, it was splintering, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. So that they could splinter off and they could go back into a different time trying to stop, obviously, the original 12 Monkeys. When I first saw that 12 Monkeys was being made into a TV series, I, I was reasonably sceptical about what it would be like. I mean, I thought the film was okay. I didn't think it was brilliant, but much to my joy when I was watching it, I, I found the TV series so much better. And I think it's one of those rare instances, very much like Breaking Bad, where a TV series gets better and better as it goes along. So you won't be disappointed with season three. Oh, well, I'll get one and watch that as well. God, there's so much. I need to book some holiday, I think, so that I can actually get all this done. Yeah. Jennifer was definitely my favourite character. Yeah, she was good. Yeah. But that, that was a quality piece of acting there, I thought. To pull off the character, who's just uh, a little bit insane, but also a genius. Yeah. It was excellent. Actually, um, Deacon, I thought, had a really good character arc. Because when he showed up at the start, I thought, oh, this guy's a bit of a tool and it's going to be a problem. But he actually turned out to be very reasonable, and he's one of the good guys now. And I thought Deacon was probably everything that Negan should have been in The Walking Dead, as in he did have a lot of redeeming qualities. He wasn't just a smart-ass with everything. He, you know, he was, There was a genuine human deep inside there. It just had to be pulled out. Even down to... Because it, it has been quite a while since I've seen it, so I am a little bit foggy with regards to 12 Monkeys, but was there like a medicine or something that they took so that they could see sort of into the future? And there was like, there was red sort of vein type red. Sorry, I'm trying to think. Yeah, no, you're right. There was this like a red leaf. Yes. But I don't want to spoil season three for you because it, okay. it's, it's explained a lot more. But you're right. If they ingested that, they could almost inhabit a parallel type universe where they could see what the... Uh, I'll spoil it for you, but it takes them to a house, doesn't it? That's surrounded in red. Yes. And I, I don't really want to say exactly where that is because that's coming up. Okay, mm. that's fine. So, yes, hashtag spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, it is big time. And it's quite central to what happens in the next season. So you, you definitely don't want to know. Okay, no problem. So I will hurry up. So that's Dexter and, and 12 Monkeys that I need to hurry up and watch now then. You won't be disappointed with Dexter. This is another one that came out 
and at the time I heard the concept and I thought, mm, not quite sure about that. But I had a, a couple of friends who watched it and they highly recommended it, said, no, seriously, you should give it a go. So I did and I, I liked it. I mean, I, I'm not immediately um, skeptical about everything that's on TV. I'll, I'll happily give everything a go. But yeah, sometimes I've just missed out. It's a bit like, a bit like reading, really. It took me a long time to read Day of the Triffids when I was younger because I just thought, oh, plants, you know, taking over the world, that sounds a little bit stupid. But it isn't, you know, it's really well done. I've not heard of that book before, so I can't I can't comment on that. But yeah, I'll take I'll take your word for it, definitely. Is it like... It's, uh, oh, sorry. No, you go. No, I was going to say, is it like Little Shop of Horrors? No, it's not quite like that. It's the... Uh, <laughs> I think it was written in 1957 or 58, possibly, by John Wyndham, British author. Okay. There's... Um, uh, he, he works with these plants called triffids, uh, but they have stingers coming out of the, like, bit like a Venus flytrap with a tongue that's a stinger. And he gets his eyes stung, so he's in hospital recovering. And there's a meteor shower that passes over Earth, and everyone looks up to watch it because of the brilliant bright light. Yeah. And everybody gets blinded. And because humanity's blinded, the triffids actually break free and take advantage of our uh, disability to move to the top of the uh, pecking order. Ah, okay. Oh, God, I need to stop talking to you. I've got far too much to do now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to stop talking. <laughs> it's, it's a bit like, have you seen I Am Legend yes. with Will Smith? Uh, have you read the book by John Wyndham? No, no, but I have seen the film. They're completely different. I mean, the, the whole point of the, the title with I Am Legend is that I mean, in the book, he's locked away in his own little house in suburbia as the last survivor on Earth. And he gets taunted by vampires outside his house, particularly his neighbour. Yeah. So he starts, you know, these vampires are legends, so he starts looking into them and seeing how he can kill them and using science behind it. So he goes out into suburbia, finds out all the vampire nests and starts killing them. Yeah, starts dragging them out, yeah. Yeah, so it's a complete flip. All of a sudden, um, these people are actually living in society, coming out at night, and he's the bloke who lives in the day and attacks them in the sleep. So now he's become the vampire, he's become the legend. And that's the whole circular point of the story. I mean, it's the very last line, you know, he said before there were scary things and and now I'm the one that's moved into myth, I am legend. And, and that's the point of the book. And I thought if they'd have done that, you know, with the Will Smith film, it would have been even better. Yeah, definitely. Because I always thought that that was his last name. So that's why I thought that he <laughs> <laughs> he was called Legend because that was that was his name. But I guess I must have missed that completely. You don't get it in the film. I mean, I, I did love the idea of him driving around the overgrown, infested streets of New York in a fast car and scaring all the deers and his he has his dog with him and everything. And, yeah, and the lions and everything. Yeah, uh, it's one of the scariest scenes of the year. I think I watched when. He was behind a reinforced glass in his lab and the, oh, uh, the creep throwing themselves at it and like headbutting it and staring at him. I mean, that, that was scary, wasn't it? It was, yeah, especially when it started cracking as well, didn't it? So, yeah. Yeah. I think the saddest scene for me was when the dog died. Yeah, yeah, it's never, never good. No, it's like put an animal, you know, in that kind of situation. Like, I absolutely love animals. So, but you put put a dying animal into a film, and I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, it's good in the it's good in the book too because it's he meets the dog and it's his only living friend. But yeah, the the dog does die. Yeah, it's so sad, isn't it? And then obviously Ooh. the dog turns, but then he has to then put the dog to sleep as well. So so that's a kind of double whammy, isn't it? Really, like for anyone who's got pets, or I haven't got pets, but I absolutely love animals. But you know, it's just. The fact that you've already seen something die and then you have to then put it back to sleep again. It seems yeah. a bit cruel, doesn't it? So 
It, yeah, as you say, it's a, a double blow. It's not nice, but I can understand why they use it as a device because it does stir some emotions inside. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It sort of takes you away from what else is going on as well, doesn't it? So it's like a different emotion, like you said. So, yeah, and the fact that he had conversations with people, well, mannequins that he'd sort of made out that were people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was uh, that was obviously showing that he was going a bit insane at the fact that you know he had no other human that he could talk to. So mm. yeah, that's uh, that's quite a common trope, I think, in these post-apocalyptic things. Yeah. Have you seen Last Man on Earth? Um, I'm, I'm probably going to throw something else at you. <laughs> you should watch. It's really good. Now. Yeah. Okay. When when we come off here, um, can you DM me all of this list? <laughs> I will. He's uh, he's a very conceited man and he, he thinks he's like the last man on earth he lives in tucson is that in arizona i believe so mm-hmm. i think so, and yeah. he uses his swimming pool as a massive toilet you know like drinks himself to death he's got a massive beard and then a woman shows up it's like all oh, right he goes with her he, i mean he, he spends his time going down to the bar talking to like balloons and balls with faces drawn on them and and they end up a couple but then you know a, a ravishing woman turns up and he, he wants her and Obviously, he's, he's in this is this in this apocalyptic scenario, and he's just such a selfish idiot that you can't help laughing at how. <laughs> well, if in in that case, then just out of curiosity, if you were the last man on earth, Ooh. what would you what would you do? That's quite an interesting question. I, I think the the first thing I'd do, it, there's no danger, like there's no monsters anywhere or anything. I, I just walk freely around. Yeah, ev- everyone's just disappeared, and you don't. It's almost like you've gone into a different time zone. Okay. You're walking around and everyone is, um, everybody is like an hour ahead of you in a way. Mm. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, like the Langoliers, Stephen King. Yeah. The, uh, I, I suppose, I, I don't know, I, I might go into uh, 10 Downing Street and start rummaging around, see if there's any uh, documents worth reading. <laughs> <laughs> go into Claridge's and like drink all the expensive whiskey and champagne. N- nothing, nothing like philosophical or mind blowing. Just enjoyment stuff, really. Because what else can you do? Yeah. What would you do? Uh, now I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> well, I think because I mean, obviously, money is no object. So it's like you know, first thought that I had was, oh, you know, you'd like hit the bank, sort of thing. You know, get as much money as you possibly could. But then at the same uh, time, what is the point? Because you wouldn't need it, would you? Because everything is at your own disposal. I guess if you're at a shop and you wanted to play the part of shop assistant and customer, you could pay yourself. Yeah. That's the only one. Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah, I could circulate the same 20, uh, 20 pound the whole time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, to be honest, I probably wouldn't get much enjoyment out of the fact that everyone had disappeared. I would, you know, would sort of like wander around for a bit because I quite like my own space. So, you know, it would be an ideal scenario in that sense. And I could go in and I, you know, view anything that I wanted or, you know, go, like you said, like go into an expensive shop and drink, you know, as much alcohol as possible, you know, and actually, you know, enjoy yourself in that sense. But at the same time, I think after a while, I would definitely get a bit stir crazy. Like Will Smith did. Yes, I mean, I've got no doubt that it would ultimately be depressing, and I would be—I'd miss everyone who wasn't there. But I think I would also have to accept it and try and enjoy the finer things in life. I don't know. I could sit in the middle of Wembley, like in a paddling pool, yeah, drinking a bottle of hundred-year-old single malt, and I don't know, have a portable barbecue next to me, rustling up some burgers that I got from the McDonald's 
um, fridges if they were still working. <laughs> um, I'm living the dream. Okay, I'm still thinking like, ooh, what, what could you do? Because like, you know, would there still be animals? Would you be able to get meat? <laughs> you know, I think I'm too, I think about things too much. That is my problem. So it would be like almost the dream, you know, I would get in a boat and I would go anywhere that I wanted to in the world and things like that. You know, like maybe, I was going to say, I'd like to go to New Zealand and places like that, but then would it even be possible? Because things like flights wouldn't exist anymore unless I learned how to fly a plane. Yeah, I don't think I would do anything like that. I put myself in too much danger. I mean, the, yeah. the southern air can be quite a, a daunting place. So, yeah, especially in a rowboat or a dinghy. <laughs> yeah, and I wouldn't trust me as a mechanic working on the plane if I was going to fly it. Um, so, yeah, I don't think I would take to the sky or the sea. Or, you know, I might go on a lake, perhaps, or a fishing boat like a mile off the coast. But yeah. in general, I think I'd be a landlubber. Definitely going to take a bit of adjusting this new life. It will. It would, yeah. But, what, I mean, what do you do? I mean, the, the first time you, you need medical attention and everything, that's it. You've had it. Yeah. Unless, of course, you know, really good first aid and not many people do, unfortunately, do they? So, you know, sort of no. stick a plaster on it. It'll be OK. Yeah, you can't operate on yourself. I know, possibly go to like some, some famous people's houses and, and have a, yeah, a bit like look through the keyhole, but apocalyptic. Yeah, that would be quite good. I'd like to do that. Actually explore, you know, like how how the rich lived. See what it's all like and, you know, what what goodies they have and things like that. I wouldn't unnecessarily take any of it, but, you know, it would be quite interesting to have a nosy, definitely. It would. And if you're really jealous, you could just um, start taking to it with a sledgehammer. Yeah. If, it, if that's all, if, because nobody would ever find it. I mean, it would just be a, a little bit of, well, just letting off steam. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and now, because I'm going to ask this question and now you're going to throw it back at me and I'm going to have to sit here and think about it <laughs> while you're answering. But So obviously, you were the last man on Earth. But then all of a sudden, the same th thing that took away all of the people brought them all back at the same time. And they're all like, well, what's happened? Because obviously you've you've taken a sledgehammer and you've you've destroyed things. <laughs> yeah, the chances are I'll be arrested, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think that you will be discovered? Because how would they know that you were the only person? Unless, of course, you were still in the house, but... Um, well, possibly because my... Uh... <laughs> I don't know, my DNA would be everywhere, wouldn't it? Um, oh, I say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fingerprints? Yeah. Well, it'd be quite a scary thought. It depends. I suppose it depends what you were doing when everybody come back, because you could be, pretend to be all part of the same confusion. Yeah, I think I would do that. Yeah, if everyone comes back and I'm in Buckingham Palace, just, I don't know, lying on the Queen's bed, reading the Kindle, drinking a can of lager, then... <laughs> It would be fairly obvious that, you know, I hadn't vanished. <laughs> yeah, that that would that would be quite a funny sight, but only for you know, only for us, not for you necessarily, because uh, I think in that case you'd probably be slaughtered for that. Because yeah, it wouldn't be a fun sight for the Queen either. I'd be dragged to the tower. Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> On the royal family, are you looking forward to the royal wedding that's coming up, or are you sort of like a non-fast? I mean, I, I do love the Queen. I signed up in the army for Queen and Country and all oh, that, and sorry. I consider myself a, a loyal subject. But this one's kind of passed me by a little bit. I, I don't know if it's age or whatever, but I haven't been caught up in it all. No, I probably won't watch it because I, I'm going to a party. 
that day in Cambridgeshire. So I don't think I'll see it. I'll probably watch highlights maybe on the news. I mean, hopefully it all goes up without a hitch. What about, what about yourself? Yeah, I'm quite looking forward to it. I mean, like, like yourself, I'm not really... I'm not really too bothered. I mean, you know, it would be nice if Prince Harry had picked me instead, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> not really that bothered. I'm happy that people are going to be happy, but it's kind of a lot of hype over something and nothing, in a way, because it is just a wedding, isn't it? Yeah, he and he isn't, like, the big-ticket item is a bit of a peripheral. I mean, he's yeah. every time William has a kid now, he gets bumped one more place down the pecking order. I think he's about fifth in line now, isn't he? I think he is, yeah, because I know that Princess Charlotte didn't lose, and that was the first time in history that it's ever happened that the daughter of the prince hasn't actually lost her position in the throne. Yeah. So I think, yes, I think Prince Harry is probably, he's never going to have a chance at doing it anyway, is he? So To be honest, if, if I was in his shoes, I'd probably be doing cartwheels. Yeah. Because it means he can keep up his lifestyle. I was in uh, Australia when the Rugby World Cup was on and he was down as a young single bloke and he was always seen staggering out of the uh, pubs at like two, three in the morning signing autographs when he was drunk. Yeah, he's a bit of a lad. So he, I don't know. I mean, he's married a, a TV star. They seem very happy together. So maybe he doesn't want that role. I think if I was him, I'd be happy where I was now. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And I think that's kind of why people like Harry as well, isn't it? Because he is the rebel of the royal family. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I had to have a pint with any of them, it would be Harry. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, with regards to the actual wedding itself, I probably won't be watching it either. So, well, it depends what else is on the tally. (laughs) It sounds awful, doesn't it? (laughs) But I'll probably watch the highlights and things as well. But I'm not really that fussed on what she wearing, you know... A lot of hype behind it all, isn't there, really? Yeah, the uh, commentary probably from David Dimbleby about the dresses and the cars and (laughs) history things we've done before and everything like that. I'm guessing if I was at home to watch it, which I'm not going to be, if it was a choice between the wedding, Noel's house party, (laughs) Splash, or that, uh, what was the ski jump one called? I'd probably go for the Royal Wedding. I don't know. Noel's house party was pretty fun. Yeah, it was. In its day. yeah, in its day. I mean, it'd be good if Mr. Blobby married them. That, that would... <laughs> oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I loved Mr. Blobby. Yeah. Did his single go to number one? I think it did. I think it did, which is just crazy. I can't even think what the the single was. I think it was just Mr. Blobby or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's called uh, Blobby. <laughs> <laughs> Blobby's Mr. Blobby. I remember owning that. Well, I think it was a tape at that point. So, yeah, I, re- I think I remember owning that. Isn't it, isn't it amazing how we go from Jack the Ripper to Mr. Blobby? <laughs> it's how a psychopath's mind works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But he was so harmless, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I I really wish Mel's house party happened nowadays because they used to put celebrities on that mini kind of ghost train thing and they get big buckets of slime dumped on top of them. Yeah. I don't think uh, contemporary celebrity egos would be able to handle that. No, no, definitely not. 
definitely not. And was that the same program? I know that it was definitely Noel who did another program, if it's not the same one, but that they would get they would get parents and one or two children, depending on how many children they have, and they'd give them presents. Yes, yeah, it was, uh, it was a little bit more innocent, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And But, like, if it was by today's standards, if, like, the kids were to get the presents that he was giving out then, they would be like, no, you're all right, where's my iPad? You know, and it's a little bit more of a selfish time, isn't it? What am I supposed to do with this? It's like, yeah. yeah. Lego? It's, yeah. I mean, I, I'm jealous of, of kids nowadays. I mean, look, looking at uh, what's available, I, I guess, you know, it's, it's all driven by technology. But, I mean, uh, my brother's kids, they've all got iPhones and everything, 12, 13, 14 and everything. I, I, I didn't have a phone until I was about 20, I don't think. No, I think I was 18 when I had a phone. But, yeah, still. And it was like a key to the house. I didn't get a key to the house until I was about, I think it was about maybe 16 17 but still you know and there's there's 12 year olds now walking around with a an iphone and b the keys to their own house you know and yeah 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 i mean that's quite a big moment isn't it when you get your first key yeah yeah absolutely it is so times have changed i feel like i feel like we're going on the path of we're getting old now <laughs> yeah well i mean the, the, i suppose the difference for me when i hear a lot of people is i, I don't go all oh, the good old days and think it's worse now i, I think it's better no, I mean, we've got a lot of more access to stuff. Yeah. The world's a lot more open. We can interact with people all across the world, you know, with social media and brilliant, like, HD TV that we can see on our screens. And Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the world as it advances. I don't wish that we could go back to whatever day because, I don't know, I, I just think opinions are always changing for the better, too. Yeah, I think, personally, this whole PC world stuff, I know that the world has always been, like, a PC kind of way, and I don't mean the advert where you stamp your foot on the floor, you know, not the PC World computer shop, but, you know. Yeah. I think that that is kind of overdone a little bit, in my opinion. It's to the point, oh, yes. where, you know, it, yeah. you have to rethink everything that you're about to say before you, you, before you actually say it, which I'm one of those people that, believe it or not, because <laughs> I've been stammering and stuttering all over the place tonight, but I'm, I'm normally pretty open. I will pretty much talk about anything. And to actually think that, you know, I can't actually turn around and say such and such because it might offend somebody, kind of, you know, it worries me, you know, that there are so many things out there that actually can upset people. And I will, personally, I will always say things in complete innocence. I mean, there's certain things, of course, that I'd never say, which, like the N-word, you'd never say it. Uh, No, no, I I know what you're saying. One issue I, I see today is with people, and I see it in the UK and I see it in the US, is... When people have uh, a different opinion, like vastly different opinions, say, um, or politically or on moral beliefs, that quite often people are prepared to find some middle ground or discuss it rationally. It turns into arguments. And I, I don't like that because it, you're never someone holding a different opinion. You never sway them by just being abusive. <laughs> it just doesn't work, does it? No. In fact, it has the opposite effect. So uh, I don't like that. Also, yeah, it, it's, the, it's this kind of... <sighs> I don't know, you, you get some mob mentalities, don't you, picking on people like that I, that I think is tantamount to bullying. Yeah. I just think that the whole respect for an individual, and, and it's, it harks back to what you said earlier, the world would be an incredibly boring place if we all thought the same things, and yeah. I don't want to hang around with everyone who thinks exactly the same as me. I mean, I do, but I don't. You know, I, I love meeting people with different opinions. Nice to have a bit of diversity, but also learning a th- uh, few things as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
So, I mean, I, I judge everything on an individual basis. I'll treat everything on an individual basis. I'm not a judgmental person. You know, take people as I find them. I mean, that, that's just my own law. But yeah, I, I do see a lot of this quite spiteful and vehement um, debate going on on Twitter. And I can't help but think that a lot of this has been artificially created as well by people who have vested interests in these things. So I generally stay out of it because it's really not worth your time because whatever side you may appear to take, uh, you'll get an earful. I mean, I've had, I'll give you an example. I wrote a um, blog post that was, you know, quite neutral on my website. And I, (laughs) I I got a few personal comments from it that I didn't decide to publish. One of them called me a, a, a liberal faggot, which I'm not even sure what that means, like a, a faggot's meatball. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. But somebody else called me a Nazi. And yeah, there was nothing, well, Nazi about, you know, there was nothing fascist about it. So it was two different people's interpretations, and they both like, put me at either side of like a political divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, Again, you know, it's this whole interpretation thing and yeah. actually reading what people say in respect to the individual. I, I've got friends, you know, on the left and right. I don't particularly spot either side, but, you know, I respect their opinions and everyone's entitled to one. So it's just when when you start presenting an opinion as fact and abusing someone who doesn't agree with you, that's when I've got a bit of a problem with it. Yeah, and that's that's what I have as well. I think also it's tricky as well because... Obviously, when you're openly speaking, you can hear like the tone of people's voices. You can hear that there's no malice behind it or anything like that. But when you tend to write things, say you write a tweet or whatever that can be portrayed in in a negative light, but you actually only mean it in a positive way or a jokey way, you know, because obviously being British, we've got a very sort of sarcastic you know, I'm speaking for myself, but uh, I, you know, obviously, if you're not the case, then please say. But you know, we have got you know that silly sense of humour that's a little bit on the case of sarcasm. You know, yeah. it's quite often, especially if you're like if you're talking to Americans. Some of my closest friends on, well, it sounds weird to say my closest friends on Twitter, but you know, I do interact with them quite often, so I do consider them friends. If I am talking to them, I have to think about how I'm wording things. Or use plenty of emojis so that they know that I'm actually only kidding around. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. I mean, I've worked for an American company. I don't find the sense of humour that, that drastically different. But again, it, I think it boils down to if you're actually speaking to someone rather than communication. Because it's easy to interpret text in a different way. Yeah. But yeah, I've got some really good friends from America. And they've been equally as sarcastic to me as I have to them. Yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, I, I quite like. That's good. And uh, important question as well. When you're making a cup of tea, do you put the milk in first or second? There is a right answer. <laughs> yeah, second, obviously. Okay, good. <laughs> we can continue yeah. this conversation. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't put it in first. No, I definitely don't put it in first. But there are people that do put it in first. And they're just they're just very, very wrong people. <laughs> like, that's like wiping your backside before you go to the toilet. I mean, it just it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Sean from, you know, the Master Debaters podcast. Yeah. Sean from the Master Debaters, he puts his milk in first and it's disgrace. Yeah. Well, I would guess you'd have to spend quite a lot of time straining it with the back of a spoon to be able to brew it. Yeah. Because it doesn't brew as well, does it? If you put the milk in there, it's very hard to brew. Yeah, absolutely. And quite like, I quite like a dark colour. Do you have Yorkshire tea? Most of the time I'm just drinking what's at work. So to be honest, because it's been put into a tea bag holder, a, a glass jar type thing. I'm never really a certain exactly what I'm drinking. But 
sometimes I know that with it, sometimes I do need two tea bags to make a good cup of tea. Probably PG tips then. Might be. They're yeah. squared. They're not triangle though. So. Did, did you? <laughs> I, I'm still not sure I 100% understand the whole pyramid tea bag thing. No. I mean, I, I remember the advert where it showed it like puffed up in the water and, you know, brownness coming out of it. But <laughs> what, what difference does it make? I, I'm not sure I got. Did you get that? No, not really. Yeah, just the fact. Yeah, I don't know because it would just spin in the cup, wouldn't it? <laughs> would I? <laughs> so, still the stack, but I, I imagine it just sinks to the bottom. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But I don't know. Maybe because it's pyramid shaped, it was. I don't know. It's definitely just a gimmick, wasn't it? Yeah, because they had these circular tea bags, Tetley's tea bags. Yep. So it was a similar type thing, but yeah. Oh, I do I like a Tetley's. <laughs> Yeah, it's the taste. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not allowed nowadays, is it? Um, the chimps tea party, you know, advertising the uh, tea bags. Yeah, oh, that was PG Tips, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. At the time, I mean, it seemed all very innocent, but again, I was a child when I was watching it. So, yeah. Now looking back, it was that was really cruel. It was it honey or something that they were using to make their lips move. I don't know. I mean, I've never looked into it. But as you say, you know, I watched it as a child. I was entertained by it. Yeah. Not so, I mean, I went to Auckland Zoo in 2002. Okay. And they had some chimps there who were quite old. We used at the chimp, chimps tea parties in the 1960s that they used to put on at the zoo. And I remember seeing them in cages and they were grey haired and they were sitting there and they all looked quite depressed. And I think that was the moment that it actually hit me that, you know, <laughs> this is actually isn't very nice. I was still a young bloke, you know, at the time. Yeah. So it took me to actually kind of witness those conditions and see them and think about it to be able to do that rather than just being a young child, seeing one with a, uh, a T-shirt and shorts pretending to move a piano and having a cup of tea on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking of the advert now, and I'm, that's why I'm giggling. So, it's yeah. it's terrible, though, isn't it? You almost feel bad for laughing, don't you? Because it is so cruel, but at the same time, they were quite comical. So. Well, yeah, we were we were creatures of our time back then, aren't we? So we can't really be judged. That, that's another mistake I think people make. It's it's judging historical things with a contemporary eye. Yeah, I mean, bad things have always been bad things. Nobody's not saying that. It's just that when those adverts were made, everybody was a thought it was okay but you know in hindsight it isn't yeah. but that doesn't make us bad people for laughing back then no no not at all and what we did was we we realized that it was cruel we learned from it we don't do it anymore you know what i mean so yeah. it's not like you carry on the carry on thinking oh yeah you know we're not we're not evil in the sense that you know if if we found it funny okay fair enough but we didn't continue doing it after we found it was cruel just because we found it funny no i i don't lament the passing of the chimps tea party adverts and i don't harbor any sort of like secret grudges for anyone stopping it or anything like that you know it's, it's just time moves on and so do attitudes so okay so we've gone from again <laughs> we've gone from serial killers to mr blobby <laughs> to tea <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I quite like this conversation. It's uh, it's been very weird and wacky. So yeah, it's it's not often you get to discuss all these kind of things. It's yeah, it's just uh, free flowing, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah, because I was thinking of just like thinking up loads of questions and stuff like that. Because that's what I tend to do. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to sit back. You know, like almost just go for it and just see what comes out today. So yeah, and it's been quite interesting. Yeah, I prefer that. I mean, uh, it's. A few years ago, I used to get a lot of interview requests from websites and uh, quite a lot of authors, and I would just be able to cut and paste my answers in because they were always the same. I mean, I, yeah. 
it's very nice that people ask me, but it's very hard. And it goes back to the written word. It's very hard to come across when you write an interview to to put down anything that's remotely interesting. Yeah. And then if you try to make it sound interesting, it's probably not very natural. Also, like your sense of humour as well is completely missing as well, isn't it? Yeah. It's nice when you actually have a audio medium because you get to know the real person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we we never had this in the uh, the good old days, or bad old days, or what, olden days. Yeah, <laughs> the days. <laughs> yeah, just days, just past. <laughs> the days of the awesome car. <laughs> I don't even know why that's a thing, because, I mean, the, the food we get now over it is great, isn't it? You know, we've got food from all over the world. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but... I, I love Indian food. I, I like the Nepalese curry. I like the Southeast Asian curries, chicken katsu curry from Japan. And Although curry is technically a British meal, but yeah. Yes, yeah. Kebabs, doner kebabs, love doner kebabs, love chicken kebabs, like Chinese food a lot, like Thai. I love Chinese food. And then when I think back to a kid, what access we had, we probably had the fish and chip shop. Yeah. That was it. So the only Chinese meal I remember having was out of a box. Uh, <laughs> get some sauce, right? But maybe this is like revealing about the kind of town that I lived in. I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe because um, I always remember personally Chinese and fish and chips. Fish and chips is the highest, highest, highest sort of uh, dining experience, I suppose, or takeaway experience or whatever in Weymouth. But because we're so close to the seaside, it's kind of you know fish on the doorstep you know everybody everyone wants you know when you go to the seaside everyone wants fish and chips don't they so whether you ever well what we call grockles have you ever heard the term grockle before no it sounds like it should be in a hans christian anderson book (laughs) or fraggle rock (laughs) basically a grockle is anybody who comes down on holiday to Weymouth um, but where it originally stems from apparently I uh, don't know if this is gospel or not but where it originally comes from is that anybody who is past the M25 that comes down or uses the M25 to come down to Weymouth we call them grockles but I don't know if that one is true or not Am I a grockle? Yes Oh, right, okay <laughs> I'm going to Google it now. I bet it's really bad. Yeah, I might do it as well, actually. Is it, is it derogatory? I don't think so. Yeah, uh, yeah well, I'm, I'm from a small town in Yorkshire, so if a stranger would come in, like the whole pub would just stop dead and everyone would just turn around and stare, you know, like an American werewolf in London. So we didn't have a name like Grockle, but um, we had a way of making people feel uncomfortable. It is horrible because, like, people, <laughs> you just want to almost be welcomed everywhere, don't you? But <laughs> I guess, you know, when it is a small village or a small town, Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows yeah. everyone's business, which is not fantastic at times, but it's it's just the way of life, isn't it? And then when it's like the summer holidays for schools, you just get this influx of people. And we've got a town bridge in Weymouth and the town bridge lifts up as well so that boats can go through, you know, when they've got their big masts. The amount of people that when they're still on the bridge, they just want to have photos on the bridge. And it's just like, I just want to get through. <laughs> I just want to walk here, you know. <laughs> It's so frustrating, but... And then when it goes up, oh my God, it's gone up. And oh, yeah, come back in two hours, it'll be up again. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, we don't have that problem. Well, I mean, when I was younger anyway. I mean, it's different now in Manchester, but... When I was younger, we'd have an outflux in the school holidays. Like, everyone would split. I mean, there's a... I guess that's a benefit of not living on the coast. I I mean, I'm from a working-class town in Yorkshire, so... Yeah, we never had that problem. But going back to what I said before, we were 
always welcoming to people who, who'd come and visit our pubs because it was just such a novelty. Yeah, and I suppose it's also another way of making money as well, isn't it? And I, mm. I don't mean that in a negative way. You know, obviously, that's how, how people strive. So I just looked up Grockle, a holiday maker or one from out of a town, particularly used in the south of England. So obviously where I am, generally generally as a mildly derogative term. So I guess I guess it is derogative. I wish those Grockles would all go home because I can't find anywhere to park. Well, yeah, I use that one quite often. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe not what I said, but it's still it's um, oh it's this annoying annoying visitor who disrupts the lives of residents. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, you're going to get that if you live on the coast, aren't you? It's uh, I don't think you can avoid it because you got all, all of us out of town that's wanting to come and um, breathe some sea air. Yes. Whereas us people that live by the sea, we all want to go into the city so that we just get away from the sea air. <laughs> Which it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it's true. Quite a lot of people, when they go on holidays, they do want to go to a city rather than go to another, you know. Well, I mean, with the exception maybe of Cornwall and places like that. But I do personally, I love being by the sea and I love love water and the beaches and everything like that. But at the same time, I also do get a rush going to a city as well because it's a completely different lifestyle. But I also feel a little bit intimidated because I'm from a small city, uh, from a small town. If yeah, that makes sense. So you know, like- it makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I mean, to be honest, I'm not really a beachy person. I uh, when I walk along the beach, like with flip flops and a, a plastic bagger, I feel like Roy Cropper from. <laughs> Crom- it's not a good look. No. But I'm completely at home in cities. I, I love visiting them. Even when I go abroad, I, I usually do city breaks. So just that, like having to absorb myself into the culture, you know, try some of the foods, look at some of the nice architecture. I, I really like nice buildings. So, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Going back to you, were, I know this was a little while ago that we were talking about your books and things, but you were saying that you get interaction from your readers, which is very lovely. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had any, like, interesting in the wacky sense people contact you and you like, any that seemed a little bit like, oh, I don't know if I ever want to respond to you or not. <laughs> Yeah, a few times. I don't think you can avoid that, really. But if you put yourself out in the public domain, there was there was one guy who kept sending me pictures of semi-naked women like lounging over sports cars, uh, and I just had to say to him, "I don't, I don't know why you keep sending me these. I never asked for them." And I, he he turned a little bit rude after that, calling me abusive and and whatnot. So oh. didn't respond after that. No, I don't think I've had anything other than that. It's been too bad. What about since collaborating with James Murray? Have you had a lot of like IJ attention? Everyone's been really nice. Oh, that's good. And quite a few people have read my books, you know, in preparation for being awakened, and they've, they've been very nice about it. A very nice group of people. So that it's a really good benefit of working with James, and uh, I'm looking forward to meeting some of them on the experience in June. Well, that's good. Okay, how are you with English sayings and where they originate from? I think I'm okay. Uh, I wouldn't say I was good. Okay. Yeah. Do you fancy having a moment of Darren learn something? All right, let's do it. I'll rise to the challenge. Okay, fantastic. So basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to say the saying and then you guess what you think it is and then I'll, I'll read what the actual meaning is. Okay. Okay, so the first one is sleep tight. Sleep tight. Yeah. I mean, that's when you get tucked in bed. Okay, so back in the 1500s and maybe even before then, some people could afford to sleep on wooden framed beds uh, so they were off of the floor. These frames 
had heavy ropes which tied from side to side that supported the mattress. Over time, the ropes would stretch so they'd have to tighten them, hence the saying, sleep tight. Later added to that was sleep tight and don't let the bugs bite. Yeah. So actually it was because of the the ropes that they tied. I mean, you do learn something every day. I, I know a few origins like flash in the pan and hoisted by your own petard and whatnot, but I didn't know that one. Okay. What about piss poor? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, you haven't got a pot to piss in. Oh, that was the next one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, piss poor is, you know, do you have to piss on the street because you haven't got a toilet? Well, um, well, that's almost the correct one for didn't have a pot to piss in. So I'll, yeah. I'll let you I'll let you kind of have a semi-point. We're well, not having a point anyway. We're just learning. <laughs> okay. Or you can have points. Do you want points? I do, yeah. Okay. I, I want I want that gratification. Okay, no problem. So, okay, you have no points for this one. Then. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I'm joking. You can have a point. Uh, they used to use urine to tan the animal skins. So families would all pee in the same pot to collect as much urine as possible. Why? Once a day. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> obviously. <laughs> because once a day, someone from the family took the pot to the tannery and sold the urine. If the family had to do this to survive financially, they were called piss poor. I mean, they weren't all pissing in it at the same time, were they? No, they were pissing in it at different times, but then it was the fact that they had to then take it to the the tannery and sell it. But why was the tannery short of urine? You, you would think that it's a supply that's hardly limited. <laughs> I suppose, you know, you've only got so much wee-wee in you, haven't you? <laughs> I can't believe I just said wee-wee. Well, you could drink lots of water if you worked at the tannery and take yourself into a machine. You could. You could. But then how many of the animal skins did they have to tan, I wonder? Yeah. Okay. If it's industrial scale, they're going to need help from these families. Yeah. Okay. I get that. Yeah. But then also, like, isn't that a bit gross as well? Wouldn't they smell horrible? Uh, Would they smell like wee, wouldn't they? Like piss? What were they using these hides for? Uh, It doesn't say, so I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't I hope it wouldn't for it wasn't for a waistcoat or something, <laughs> or for a rug. <laughs> yeah, it's a scarf. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they didn't have a pot to piss in. Yeah, so they uh, didn't have a toilet. Well, they didn't have a pot. They were too poor to have a pot, yeah. so they used to have to go and use a latrine. Yes, you get a point. Ding ding. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Yeah, well done. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that's fairly self-explanatory, isn't it? Well, kind of. When you're throwing away the bathwater, if you're chucking it out of your window, like old school style Tudor, you know, when you lived on the second floor, yep. if the baby was still in the uh, the little tin bath, then obviously that would lead to disaster. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know whether to give you a point. Let, let's let's see what... I'll read it a moment and then let's see what happens. Baths consisted of a big tub filled with hot water. The man of the house had the privilege of bathing in the nice, clean hot water. Then all of the other sons and men, then the women, and finally the children could take their turn in the big bathtub. Last of all came the babies, but then the water was so dirty that you could actually lose someone in it. Oh, my God. That is so disgusting, isn't it? <laughs> oh, God. That's awful. <laughs> I mean, considering that back then, you know, people had manual, quite dirty jobs. Yeah. Well, you, would, you would think you'd bath the baby first, surely. Well, you would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And especially as also, probably in those days, it was like once a month, maybe, they had baths mm. as well. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, it doesn't bear thinking about. I mean, imagine getting a mouthful of that bathwater if you're in last. <laughs> Oh, God. Floating in it. (laughs) So I'm going to give you half a point for that because, um, yeah, no problem. So because I'm feeling generous, I've given you two points at this point. Okay. Right. Um, This is one of my favourite ones. It's raining cats and dogs. (sighs) What Was there an ancient story sometime where – no, that was fish, wasn't it? It fell from the sky. I think there were – the story is that they were taken up through precipitation somehow and then dropped. I don't know. Raining cats and dogs. You were very close when you said raining from the sky. Yeah. And you thought it was fish, but it wasn't. Well, what, did, it's not exactly it it's not exactly it, but obviously I'm not expecting you to know it completely because obviously it's written in front of me. So, Is it biblical? Did like uh, on, on a day to, no. I don't know, no. so somebody stole a snake's apple and no? No. No. Oh. Would you like me to put you out of your misery? Yes, yes, please. Okay. Houses had thick thatched uh, straw piled high roofs with no wood underneath. It was the only place for the animals to get warm. So all of the cats and other small animals, mice, bugs, dogs, obviously, lived in the roof. When it rained, it became very slippery and sometimes the animals would slip out and fall off the roof. Okay. So, so hence... Mm. Raining cats and dogs. Yeah, it's difficult to imagine that, isn't it? If you looked at a village, you know, with loads of thatched roofs and it started raining, and then dogs, cats and mice all just started dropping to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a bit crazy, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. What was next? Okay. Dirt poor. Dirt poor. Yeah. I would imagine that because they couldn't bath very often, that the families would have dirty faces or dirty hands. No. Floors in many houses were simply the dirt that the house was built upon. Only the wealthy could afford stone or slate floors. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we must be going back quite a while now. Oh, yeah, yeah. These these are literally... Um, I don't know if it says actually when... Unless it's some of the deepest, darkest towns in Lancashire, where I believe it's still like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think these are all based around about the 1500s. So it would be, you know, very... Very much olden times. Yeah. Bring home the bacon. Bring home the bacon. So that's bringing back the pay, isn't it? But I assume that it's probably some pig related. So like the person in the house with the money would bring back the meat to eat for the dinner. Yeah. I'm going to give you a point for that. Sometimes people could obtain pork and this would be a special occasion. So when they had guests, they would hang up their slab of bacon to show off. This was a sign of comparative wealth when a man could bring home the bacon. So, yeah, yeah, so that's that's three points. Well done. <laughs> I do like that. I mean, I, I like the idea that you could just show off by hanging up a big leg of bacon. I mean, that's. I mean, how do people show off now? It's like having a huge flat screen TV, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a bit lame now, isn't it? Really, <laughs> everyone's yeah. got one. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, we've all got them now. It's it's not impressive. So, I mean, what would be the modern equivalent of bringing home the bacon? Um, I suppose it'd be um, having an Oculus headset or something, wouldn't it? Yeah, mm. maybe. Or maybe, you know, the Apple headphones, because they're quite expensive, aren't they? Yes, bringing home the Apple. <laughs> there we go. Bringing home the headphones. Yeah, we're just, move, we're just moving these sayings on, because some of them are a little bit silly. They are. Some of them are. This one is holding your weight. Holding a weight? Yeah. But it's just a statement of fact, isn't it? I, I don't know what the saying's supposed to mean. I mean, I know what holding a wake is. It's the, you know, it's um, drinks after a funeral, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I guess party isn't quite the word, but yes, 
the yeah. gathering after that. But actually, where it stems from is lead cups were used to drink ale or whiskey. The combination would sometimes knock the enablers, uh, inebia, oh God, I'm, knock the people out for a couple of days. Someone walking along the road would take them for dead and prepare them for burial. They were laid out on the kitchen table for a couple of days and the family would gather around and eat, drink and wait to see if they would wake up. Well, what, what were these people drinking? Well, they, it was the fact that they were drinking ale and whiskey out of lead cups. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. So basically, so, it was like almost they were getting lead poisoned. I see. Right. OK, fair enough. Never realised it had that kind of effect. We're definitely all learning something new today. Oh, I am. I am too, to be honest, because I didn't know all of these. So, And then last one. Well, there's three sayings. So they all kind of mean the same thing. Mm. Saved by the Bell, not the TV programme. A dead ringer and the graveyard shift. Well, I thought Saved by the Bell was um, boxing. You know, when you, you get in the tank out and they ring the bell, but obviously not. It's probably something to do with graveyards and a bell from the 1500s, where most of these things seem to originate from. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the grave diggers have a bell or sick people. Have a, did they ring a bell when someone died and that's when they got buried? I don't know. What, what is You're it? Very, very close with that. So again, I'll give you another point. So ding, ding. England is old and small and the local folk, folks started running out of places to bury people. So they would... Hold on a few seconds. What? England is old and small. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it starts. <laughs> England's big and grand. I know. I know. I almost, I almost checked on the words. I'm sorry, but it is what's written. <laughs> yeah. And and local folk started running out of places to bury people. So they would dig up, they would dig up coffins and take up the bones to a bone house and reuse the grave, which is gross in itself. And that is not written in there. That is my opinion on that. When reopening the coffins, one out of 25 coffins were found with scratch marks on the inside and they realised that it had been burying people alive. So they would tie a long string on the wrist of the corpse, let it through the coffin and up through the ground and tie it to a bell. Someone would sit at the graveyard all night at the graveyard shift to listen for the bell. Thus, someone could be saved by the bell or was considered a dead ringer. That is absolutely bizarre. I mean, what kind of doctors did they have back then? I mean, first of all, we've got the uh, thinking people are dead because they're hammered with a mixture of lead poisoning and they hold a wake for them. <laughs> but then they're, they're burying one out of 25 people alive. Yeah. It's like, oh, they've got their eyes closed. They must be dead. <laughs> yeah. It's not inebriated. <laughs> You're scared to go to sleep in the 1500s, wouldn't you? You'd probably wake up in a coffin if you had, like, a, a lion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. But at least, you know, you might have this wonderful bit of string tucked tied to your wrist. <laughs> yeah. Oh, th thank God for that. You know, I've been buried alive, but I can ring the bell, providing someone's listening on the graveyard ship. <laughs> yeah. And he hasn't dozed off himself, yeah. <laughs> mm. <That's> a terrifying thought. <laughs> that, yeah, it's weird where the sayings come from because I've always kind of liked where the sayings come from. So most of mine are military related. You know, like three square meals a day. Okay, is is no. that just purely like breakfast, lunch, and dinner type thing, or is that something other than what I'm saying? Well, Gemma can learn now. I, I might. Yeah, this might be complete bollocks. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, then um, I will be learning it. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I'll just lie. They, they, I, no, I, I believe it's for, you always get three meals a day in the armed forces, Navy, um, Army, and later Royal Flying called the Air Force. But the three square meals there were on uh, a ship 
So the, the plates were square because when the ship used to list to either side, rather than spilling off the edge of the a circular plate, it would bounce off the right angles of the corner. Ah. So that's three square meals a day. Oh, that's good. That is good. <clears throat> it is good, but it could be uh, nonsense. <laughs> but I, don't think, I think it's true. <laughs> that sounds like something that would be true. Well, it's going to be true. It's true now. Don't People just don't Google it, okay? That's the truth. <laughs> yeah, it's flashing the pan. I mean, that's from the old pistols where you used to have to put the gunpowder in the pan and then shoot it and you get the uh, get ignited. If the flash went off, then the, the gun wouldn't fire. So, you know, it's flashing the pan, you know, it, it didn't go off, going off half cocked. Pistols are not good. Well, I mean, they, they serve their purpose, obviously, in war times, but yeah. I think that's a different conversation for a different day, though. <laughs> yeah, it would. Yeah, gun crime and all that. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're happy to, I was going to say suggest maybe wrapping this up now. But it has yep. been it has been absolutely lovely speaking to you. You too. And before you go, where can people find you on Twitter and social media? Twitter is at Darren Wearmouth. That's D A R R E N W E A R M O U T H. My website is darrenwearmouth.com and there's a few blog posts on there about if I think aliens exist or there's one about food snobbery. Just general nonsense if you've got two minutes of your life you feel like you can waste. <laughs> Amazon.com or .co.uk, you can find my books there. And awakennovel.com, where you can get the tickets for the experience or pre-order the book. Yeah. And also, just remembered as well, you've got your own podcast as well, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I do with Carl Casual Loops. We uh, we did a first season, like uh, eight episodes. We plan to do some more in the future. That is Casual Loops. Actually, if you go through my website, you can listen to the episodes there on SoundCloud. Oh, that's good. It's just on SoundCloud, that one, is it? Yeah, it is, yeah. It was on iTunes, but because we changed provider from Libs into SoundCloud, something's gone wrong, and I haven't had time to look into it yet. But they're available on SoundCloud. I mean, that's understood, isn't it? Obviously, you're a very busy man, so... Okay, well, brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much.